It's a great danger that meets us right as we begin to read Luke 15. Luke 15 is beautiful. I love Luke 15. The prodigal son is, is a beautiful, beautiful parable. We, we love the picture of the father and the son being reunited. It's so beautiful. But there's this really great danger that meets us at the very beginning. It's the danger that, that we, we, we who know the Lord, we who love Jesus Christ, it's the danger that we might actually oppose the work of Jesus on the pretense of godliness. That's the danger, that we might actually oppose the work of Jesus on the pretense of godliness. That happens here. That's what happens in Luke 15. Here's how it happens. Jesus Christ came into the world to seek and save the lost. Right? Did you know that? That's Luke 19 in the story of Zacchaeus. Jesus came into the world to seek and save the lost. Look what's happening at the beginning of Luke 15. Look at the picture. Jesus is there at the table. And look who's gathering around him. Sinners, tax collectors. This is practically a miracle. Those people who we might have thought would be the most likely to keep their distance from Jesus. Because, hey, he's too holy. I'm not good enough. I don't want to be preached to by this person. Like, there's too much shame for me to be in his presence. Those people are gathering around Jesus. Jesus is seeking and he's saving the lost. That's happening. That's why he came. But the next thing we learn right after we see that beautiful picture is that there's this group that sees all that happening and is grumbling about it. They're not happy about it. Well, of course there's a group that's not happy about it. That's Satan and the demons, right? Jesus is robbing hell. He's rescuing people from hell. And Satan and the demons are really unhappy and they're grumbling about it. That's what the text says, right? Of course they're angry. It's the godly people. Who were grumbling. They're the, it's the godly people who are looking at this beautiful picture of the lost being found and saved. And they're the ones that are grumbling. They were the ones in the community that represented God. They were the supposedly godly ones. They didn't like Jesus making himself unclean and breaking protocol by receiving sinners and eating with them. No self-respecting rabbi, no truly holy person who really had an idea of what's pleasing to God and keeping oneself clean. No one who respected the holiness of God would do such a thing. Certainly not them. Having this really intimate time with sinners and tax collectors, eating with them. 
You know, they thought, hey, he shouldn't be doing that. If he were godly, he wouldn't do such a thing. So they opposed the work of Jesus on the pretense of godliness. This was the thought. We're too godly to do what Jesus is doing. This is admittedly and unashamedly a sermon that's pointed right at people who are really familiar with God, who have been in church for a long time, who are really familiar with their Bibles. People who have developed an idea of what godliness looks like. And the goal for us in participating in this text and in this sermon is to avoid opposing the work of Jesus on the pretense of godliness. In other words, we can think that we're doing the right thing. We can think that we're doing the God-honoring thing. And we can be wrong. And we can actually be opposing the work of God. All the while thinking that we are supporting the work of God. We can be exactly wrong. That's what happens here in Luke 15. And it's why the parable of the prodigal son gets told. And it's why the older brother is the main character. Because he represents and acts as a mirror For these religious people, the religious leaders, who think they're being godly, but actually opposing the work of God. So let's learn what we need to learn, even if it's hard, even if it's offensive. That's why I prayed as a reminder that this is all happening in an atmosphere of grace. Because at the end of this parable, the effect that it was told for, like... The purpose and what the result of it would have been is that people would have left offended. You know, we think prodigal son, we think beauty. When it was originally told, it would have been very offensive to the people that heard it because it was pointed right at their hearts as a mirror to show them the ugliness. And so if you leave offended today, like that's actually kind of the point. So... If you do leave offended, one thing to rejoice in is that we have faithfully looked at the text, even though it's going to be hard, okay? How can we avoid opposing the work of Jesus on the pretense of godliness? We'll give two answers to the question, okay? Two answers. We need to recognize something in order to avoid opposing the work of Jesus on the pretense of being godly, okay? Two answers to that question. How do we do that? We have to recognize something and we have to fight for something, okay? First of all, we have to recognize something. We've got to recognize first and really, really internalize. Recognize, brothers and sisters, that there is more than one way to be ungodly. There's more than one way to be ungodly. Now, when I was growing up, and I told you a moment ago, I I grew up in the church. I was in Baptist churches most of my life, all of my growing up years. When I was growing up in church, I thought that there was really only one way to be ungodly. 
you were ungodly if you lacked purity. Who are the ungodly people? Well, the ungodly people are the ones that lack purity. They're the kids who are doing the bad stuff, saying bad words, not going to church. You know, they're ungodly because they're not pure. That was my picture of ungodliness. If you lacked purity, you were ungodly. That's the picture that the scribes and Pharisees had as well that we're reading about in this text. These sinners were ungodly people. These tax collectors are ungodly people. That was also the view held by the older brother. You know, my, who's the bad one in your family? Well, the younger brother. He's the, he's the ungodly one. His younger brother was the one that looked nothing like the father. Now, the older son, he looked like the father. Did you notice where he was when his story began? Out in the field, of course, like always. Now, the older son was in the field. Yes, he's doing the right thing, right? That was me. How many of you, that's your story. Always doing the right thing. Exactly what is he supposed to be doing. Dutiful. Good. He's doing the work that pleases the father. He's doing the right things while his younger brother is off doing the wrong things. And boy, this older brother, a real picture of the father himself, right? But what we learn from the parable of the prodigal son is that there's more than one way to be ungodly. Lacking purity is one way to be ungodly. But so is lacking love and compassion for the lost. You can be ungodly by lacking purity. You can also be ungodly by lacking love and compassion for the lost. That is also ungodly. That also doesn't look like the father. See, neither one of these boys in the parable looks like their father. Father represents God. Neither one of them looks like dad. The younger son lacks their father's purity. The older son lacks his father's compassion and love for the lost son that's been found. He doesn't care that his brother repented and has been found. He doesn't care about that at all. He's too busy comparing the younger brother's behavior to his own. That's verse 29. Look at his words. Look, these many years I have served you. I have never disobeyed your command. See, he thinks he's the good one in the family. Obedient. He thinks he's the godly one because he's only looking at Outward behavior. He's blind to the reality that he he doesn't share his father's heart. That's an internal thing. He's not compassionate. He has no love for the lost. There's no desire to see them restored. So he's blind to his own kind 
of ungodliness. I'll say that one more time. He's blind to his own kind of ungodliness. Okay? This is my story. This this sermon is really, really personal for me. And if you feel like I'm preaching hard at you, please know that I'm really preaching hard at myself. Because this was my story. I was the older brother for a long, long time, thinking for years that I was the good one. I'm living among all these ungodly people, impure, and my attitude toward them was condemning, judgmental. I didn't, I didn't care if they came to know Jesus. I just wanted them to know that their behavior was wrong and mine was right. I wanted to look better than them. I wanted them to know that I had the Father's approval and that they didn't. Now, were they doing things that were ungodly? Yeah, they were. Was I more godly than them? No. No, I wasn't. We were just ungodly in different ways. Like these two boys in the story, one lacking his father's purity, one lacking his father's compassion. Neither one of them looked like God. And it took me a long time to be healed of my blindness, and there was a long trail of hurt people in the wake. I opposed Jesus' work on the pretense of my own godliness. So I had the older brother syndrome really bad. Anybody else ever had the older brother syndrome? Anyone still have older brother syndrome? You know, it's just like the Lord to do this. I kind of thought going through this sermon, hey, you know, I, I had older brother syndrome. Like that's in the past. And then God this week uncovered these new, uh, new things in my life that showed me that actually, yeah, you actually do still have it. And that, that still needs to be rooted out of your heart. I just discovered a fresh set of symptoms. I just want to ask you, if, have you ever internalized that there is more than one way to be ungodly? Do you still have that monochromatic view of godliness? Like, yeah, you're ungodly if you lack purity. Did you, I mean, have you really internalized that you're ungodly if you lack love and compassion? See, we never talk about that. We're really quick to condemn ungodliness because of lack of purity. We almost never condemn ungodliness due to lack of love and compassion. Like, we totally let that slide in the church. We never talk about that. Because we view those people are a common enemy, right? That's what we say. So it's okay to not love them. But have we read the Sermon on the Mount? Is that really okay? It's a really shameful condition that the scribes and the Pharisees are in, lacking love and compassion. If we see that in ourselves, it's a really shameful condition. Jesus highlights how shameful it is with these first two parables at the beginning. He shows those people listening, like, to their shame that you know how to celebrate, like, finding a lost animal. Like, you throw a party when you find an animal that's lost. And when you find a a piece of metal that's got just a little bit of value, like a coin, 
and you throw a party and celebrate an inanimate object being found, it, like you're eager to do that and you know that, but then when a person is found, when it was a person who was lost and it's found, like how condemning is that? That all of a sudden you're angry and you all of a sudden you don't go to the party that's already being thrown? I'm going to ask you a diagnostic question that's probably going to be painful, but we're going to do it anyway, just to try to further diagnose this older brother syndrome that I'm just saying, got my hand in the air. Okay, I'm with you. I'm going to ask you a question. Maybe this is going to be a helpful diagnostic tool for you. Just try to decide, to what degree am I suffering from this older brother syndrome? Think about this. If everyone's behavior in this country, we'll limit it to just the United States, okay? If everyone's behavior in this country, all of a sudden we woke up one day and everyone's behavior conformed to exactly what you would want it to be. Like, if you write down your moral code and you wake up one morning and everybody is doing that. Everyone has conformed their behavior to exactly what you want to see. No political battles left to fight. It's all done. How would you feel? And would you still walk around with a broken heart? Because no one came to know Jesus. Everyone just changed their behavior. Everyone's behavior changes and gets good, but no one in the process comes to know Jesus. How would that make you feel? Would you still have, would you have anguish in your heart like Paul for his own countrymen? Because people are separated from God. Would there be anguish in your heart or would you just throw a party and celebrate and say, it's all over, everything is good, because finally the behavior matches mine. What do the scribes and the Pharisees lack in this account? What do they not have? Well, they don't love people. They lack love. Love for the tax collectors, love for the sinners as people far from God. All they're concerned about is behaviors, the sinner's behavior, Jesus' behavior. There's no love, there's no compassion, there's no brokenheartedness for people. Like I said before, this is my story. I got to college, you know, kind of graduated high school, part of the church, got to college, got to college. One of the first things I did, Brant Hall, Decorah, Iowa, started telling people what to do. Hey, did you know you're not supposed to be doing that? Did you know that that's bad? You should really stop doing that. I went into like this behavior modification mode. Really embarrassing and really dumb, right? Thought I was doing the right thing. Thought I was being helpful. I was being a nuisance. I was being prideful. Thought I was bringing people closer to Christ. I was driving people further away from Christ. They knew I didn't love them. I didn't love them. 
I didn't care if they came to know Jesus. All I wanted was for their behavior to be different. You know, you might have thought by that time that I would love people. You know, growing up in the church, how many times had I heard, for God so loved the world? How many times had I heard, love your neighbor as yourself? You might have thought I would have looked a little more like that after all those years and all those Sunday school classes. Just like we would have thought that the older brother in the parable might look a little bit more like his father by this time. All those hours in the field together, all that time around the table, right? Surely something would have been formed in his heart that would look a little bit more like his father after all those years. And yet it didn't happen. And so that can be our story. There's more than one way to be ungodly. You can look like the younger son and be ungodly that way, or you can look like the older son and be ungodly that way. Your story may be a younger son's story. Your story may be an older son's story like me. What's the point? We all need Jesus. Jesus was perfectly both, perfectly pure like the Father. Completely compassionate. He's both. And so our goal as his disciples is to be both. To have both the purity of the Father and the love and compassion of the Father. That will keep us from opposing the work of Jesus in the world on the the pretense of this godliness that we think we have. All right? All right, let's drive toward one specific application because all we've been doing so far is talking about what we don't want to be like, like avoid this. Let's talk about one thing we can do, something proactive that will actually help us engage the work of Jesus in the world. Because we are his hands and his feet. He's doing his reconciling work through us. So where does this text send us in terms of practical application? How can we begin to change and move in a different direction? Well, I want to give you something that we can fight for, okay? It's going to be something unexpected. It's not what you think. I want to give you something to fight for based on this text. I think Christians are eager to fight for something right now. That's not a wrong impulse. It's not wrong to want to fight back against the encroaching darkness, all right? Ungodliness is being codified more and more around us, right? Especially in our state, it's happening. You may feel overwhelmed. You may feel helpless. Like, what do we do? How do Christians fight back against this? Let's talk about it. In the Gospels, we're told a lot of things that Jesus did. All these things. Jesus did this, Jesus did this, Jesus did this. Did you know there's, there's at least one thing that we never read that he did. Jesus never grumbled. Do you ever remember hearing about Jesus grumbling? You know, we, we might think that he would. We might think that he being holy, perfect representation, the Father would come to this earth and grumble at the sin that he sees around him and the darkness that surrounded him. Jesus was not a grumbler. Jesus was an inviter. That's how he fought back against the darkness around him. He invited people to his table. And he invited people to follow him. 
I want to give you something to fight for. I don't know if these, this particular phrase has ever been uttered in a church before. Probably so, okay? But I want you to fight for a heterogeneous table. I want you to fight to have a table in your life, your Christian walk, that's heterogeneous. You know, hetero meaning different. A table, I want to encourage you to develop in your life a heterogeneous table that you eat at with other people who represent different convictions, different behaviors, different gods. I want you to fight to be present at that kind of table. A table where one person is holy and no one else makes any pretense to holiness. You are the holy one. You, your vessel, indwelt by the Holy Spirit. That's you, Christian. You bring the sanctified presence to that table. The table is sanctified because of the Holy Spirit's presence in you. You are the presence of Christ at that table. Don't wait for other people to demonstrate some kind of holiness before they can join you at that table. Fight to have a table that looks like Luke 15.1. We typically fight for the other kind of table. Like the table we fight for is to try to arrange things just right so everybody around shares the same political views, shares the same behaviors and practices. Like if we're having people over, that's kind of what we try to create. Let's have this homogeneous table where everyone kind of is in agreement and supports all the same things. Remember that in the Christian life, there are two tables. There are two tables in the Christian life. Both of these should be present in your life. There is a homogeneous table. That's the table of communion. The table of communion is closed. Only disciples of Jesus. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, all in agreement, all gathered around him. That table's closed. That's a homogeneous table regarding conviction and confession. Same. But there's another kind of table that we could call the table of witness. Different, heterogeneous. The table of witness where there's one holy person or just a few. Everyone else is different. And it's the opportunity to bear witness to Jesus Christ. That's what we want to see happen. We want people far from God to draw near to a Christian. To be in the presence of Christ in that respect. To be listened to and to be given bread to eat. And to come to know the Lord Jesus. Two tables in the Christian life. The table of communion and the table of witness. Jesus in the Gospel of Luke was present at both. He was present at both kinds of tables. Luke 22, table of communion with his disciples, only them. Table of witness, Luke 15, heterogeneous, different, sinners, tax collectors, everyone come, come near to the Lord. I want to encourage you to fight for that kind of table. Who are we fighting with? Well, we're fighting with ourselves. 
This is a battle we wage with our own prideful hearts, with our own laziness, with our own judgmental attitude. Like, we don't want to... We don't want to do that. That's too much work. I'm afraid of what's going to happen. That's the fight. It's a fight against our own uncompassionate hearts, our own unloving hearts. That's the battle that I'm saying we need to take on. Last thing. Last question. Just look out into the future, okay? 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now, wherever you're at in your life, when you look back, 20 years from now, 30 years from now, 40 years from now. Do you want to look back on a a legacy in your life of grumbling? Or do you spend all this time grumbling about people and policy and stuff? Or do you want to look back 20, 30, 40 years from now on a legacy and a practice of inviting? Which kind of legacy do you want to have? Grumbling about people? the darkness or inviting people out of the darkness that's where we're at church those are the two options that are before us in this cultural moment we can stand off to the side and grumble about people or we can roast the meat open the house and start a revolution Which one of those options is commended by Luke 15? And which one of those options best represents the kingdom of God? Are we not all unworthy sinners who have been called to the table of the king? Is that not all of our story? Sinful and unworthy and yet called around him to his table, the table of grace. Should we not then go and do likewise? Remember that you were lost. Some of us, after a long time, forget, oh yeah, I was lost. And remember that you've been found by grace. Go and do likewise. Heavenly Father, we, we, bless, uh, we bless your name. We thank you that we too have been found, if we've been found. We thank you for the gospel of grace, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, which tells us that we are not found and saved because of our own good behavior, but we are saved because of Jesus' good behavior, saved by placing our faith in his perfect worth and perfect life, and so that our story is only grace. We thank you for this beautiful parable. Uh, We thank you that it has the power to pierce to the heart and create real life change. And so as a church, we just say, take us and mold us into this shape and give us the joy of seeing this beautiful revival for the sake of Jesus Christ, the beautiful one. And we ask in his holy name. Amen.